Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Wyoming Institute for Humanities Research podcast. The following episode is taken from our Think and Drink series of talks, which are informal conversations by humanities faculty, researchers, and practitioners on a range of topics. Please subscribe to our podcast and YouTube channel and follow us on Facebook for notifications on future events. Welcome, everyone, to the Wyoming Institute for Humanities Research Think and Drink series, uh, which are weekly conversations uh, on Thursdays at 5.30 Mountain Time uh, with scholars and humanities practitioners. Uh, welcome, and we are so happy that you're here, and we hope that you are doing as well as you can possibly be doing, given the state of the world in which we live right now. Uh, I'm Scott Hinkle. I'm the director of the Wyoming Institute for Humanities Research, and it is my great joy uh, to introduce you tonight to, to Dr. Eric Hayo, uh, who is Distinguished Professor of Comparative Literature and Asian Studies and Director of the Center for Humanities and Information at the Pennsylvania State University. He is the author of several books, including On Literary Worlds and The Elements of Academic Style. And I want to say on a personal note uh, that Eric's book, The Elements of Academic Style, has had a profound influence on me and how I write and how I think about writing. So I personally am very grateful, Eric, that you're here with us tonight. Uh, the title of Dr. Hayo's talk is How to Think Like a Humanist and Why. And I want to say to everyone listening that at any point you can type into uh, the chat box a question or a comment and Eric and I will see it. Um, so if any point you, you wish to write to us, please do. Uh, Dr. Hyo will talk and then we will take your questions uh, at the end. So I'm so glad you're here. I am going to shut my screen off. So please everyone welcome Eric Hyo. Okay, this is the part where uh, you click the uh, clapping button, I guess, uh, to make things uh, happen. But in any case, um, thank you, Scott, uh, both for that very nice introduction and also for inviting me to Wyoming. However, virtually, I had really, really been looking forward to being there in person and am disappointed not to be. But, um, you know, if this is the worst thing that happens to me during the coronavirus, then I think things will be okay. Um, thank you to all of you for showing up. Um, I recognize that this is a complicated time. If you'd told me, you know, a few months ago that I would find the kinds of things I'm finding stressful these days stressful, um, I would have said, no, that seems like okay, I could deal with that. But it turns out that it's much harder than I thought it would be. Um, and it's just, you know, it's just hard. So uh, I hope this is uh, useful and good for you. Um, I hope this uh, somehow helps you out um, and is interesting. Uh, I'll say more about it as I get going, but let me now work on sharing screen. This is my first virtual talk ever. So it's actually not my first. Oh, host disabled participant screen sharing, Scott, is the message I just got. So I am not sure what I should do here. Um, my quick idea is to send you, I guess the problem is that if anyone can share their screen, then we're going to run into some possible problems, but. Um, I just changed it for you. Hopefully that is now working. Okay. Let me, uh, let me try it again. Let me get the screen. I was, I was actually getting ready to, uh, in a panic, email you the thing. All 
right, let's try again. Share screen. Perfect. All right, here we go. Okay, so how to think like a humanist and why. That's the talk. It'll go about know, 45 minutes. Um, and then obviously at the end, I'll be happy to take questions. The talk is coming out of a book that I'm just finishing called Humanist Reason. And parts of the book are things I'll describe today and parts of it are not in this talk. But um, what the book is trying to do is to respond to uh, a couple stories, which I'm about to tell you. And in one of the things the book does is attempts to do for humanist thinking what my book, The Elements of Academic Style, did for humanist writing. So hopefully it does those things and that would be very exciting and good. But let me begin by telling you a couple of stories. Let me see if I can make this go forward. Oh, perfect, there we go. So there's two stories I want to tell you. They both actually happened in the same year, uh, which is the year 2000 and well, I mean, the same academic year, 2006, 2007. I'm living in Los Angeles. Uh, and I'm a fellow at the Inst in International Institute at UCLA. And one of the things that happens in the International Institute at UCLA is that we have talks. And um, the, the fellows are social scientists and humanists. So people like me, historians, people in literature and anthropology and so on and so forth, but also economists and uh, quantitative political scientists and so on. And one of our speakers is a guy named Romain Waxiard. He's French, and he's at the time at Stanford, although he's actually now at UCLA. He's an economist, and he gives a talk. And the subject of the talk is the attempt by Waxiard and one of his collaborators to answer the question, why did, this is an important question for all kinds of reasons, why did Europe go from being a military and economic backwater of the planet in 1500 or even in 1600 to being the leader or the dominant power, let's say, of the modern world. And the way that Waxier wants to answer, ask this question, it has to do with what you might call, if you were a social scientist, a null hypothesis. And the null hypothesis is this, that if I invent something and I have two equidistant neighbors, so I have a neighbor on the right and I have a neighbor on the left, that my neighbors on the right and the left should adopt that invention, let's say it gives me some kind of technological or economic advantage or military advantage. They should adopt that invention at the same time because they are equidistant from me. That's what an economist would assume that rational actor theory would sort of tell you that would happen. But in fact, what happens as we know in, in the history of the planet is that there are a number of technological and uh, economic and uh, social innovations that take place in Europe that don't get adopted immediately by other people in the world. And so Waxierg is saying, well, you know, look, theoretically, at least, according to sort of rational actor economic theory, you would think that uh, people would just all adopt the same thing at the same time. But it turns out that they don't. And the question is, why don't they? And um, he attempts to answer this, he and his, again, his collaborator, attempt to answer this question by um, mathematically by using genetic population markers and basically asking whether in fact culture, but again, they're not asking about culture, they're asking about genetic population markers that define populations, you know, that differentiate the Chinese from the Russians, let's say, 
Um, and they basically assume that these genetic, because you know, the problem with culture is it's fuzzy and it's hard to measure. So the genetic population markers give them something to measure that's quantitative. And then they're mapping that against the rate of technological transmission. And what they find, the big conclusion, is that in fact culture, that is different forms of culture, affect the rate of technological transmission. In other words, that for instance, if I'm a Christian and my neighbor over here is a Christian, but my neighbor over there is a Muslim, it's more likely, even though they're the same distance from my house, that my Christian neighbor will adopt whatever technological innovation I adopt faster than my Muslim neighbor. Either because my Christian neighbor trusts me and is like, well, if Eric Hayo is doing it, it must be okay or because I like my Christian neighbor more because I'm Christian and we share a culture. And so I say, hey, buddy, like, here's this cool thing that works out, but I don't say that to my Muslim neighbor over there, right? That's essentially the premise. So he goes, proves, proves all this stuff. And at the end of it, and I'm struggling because what he is proving, and I know that some of you on this, in this audience are undergraduates. And so I know that, it's, uh, you know, but, but I, I, the talk and the book are really written for faculty. And so I hope that those of you who are faculty in the humanities are sitting there thinking right now, well, my God, like, why did you have to work to prove that? That's basically something everyone I know already believes. The idea that culture influences the spread of technology and other forms of power is like so basic to the way that I think about the world that I'm sitting here in the talk and I'm sitting like listening to Walkstaff talk and I'm thinking like, I am going, like, I'm in a parallel universe. I, this is a practical joke. Like, I don't understand what's happening. And I'm getting madder and madder and more and more confused. But I calm myself down and I ask a question. And the question is basically this, which is everyone in my field already believes that culture affects the transmission and movement of other forms of technology and economic structures. Like, I already believe that. I believe it from the beginning, from the get-go. So why is this interesting in your field? And before Waxiar can respond, his response was actually, he felt very offended by my question. So whatever, we're really decide. Ron Rogowski, who is a very lovely man in other ways, but in this moment was not particularly lovely, jumps in and says, that's because you all are all Leninists. So what's a Leninist in this moment, right? A Leninist is someone who believes that power shapes the fundamental structures of reality. That's what Rogowski means. But he doesn't mean you, you're Leninist and Lenin is great and he's right about things. He means you're Leninist and you're stupid because Lenin was wrong, right? So he's, it's not, he's not trying to compliment me in this moment. He's saying that's because you all, and who does he mean by you all? He means me and other professors of literature and history, right? And he means that we're all, and, and again, he doesn't say that's because you all believe, as I do, that power shapes the flow of culture on the basis of evidence. He says it's because I'm a Leninist. And what does that mean? It means that I have an ideological pre predisposition to what, like to a bad communist, a bad scary communist person, right? An ideological predisposition that shapes my assumptions about the world. So it's a story, both, both the Waxiark story and the Rogowski story, which come together in this moment, right? Our stories about, in the first place, Waxiark trying to prove something that a bunch of other people know, but which in fact, even though they know it doesn't really count as knowledge, right? Even though in fact, the humanities have proven over and over to my satisfaction through our work that in fact, culture shapes the transmission of all kinds of other goods. That's not real for Waxiarg because it doesn't count as real knowing. And then for Rogowski, 
The reason that it doesn't count as real knowing is because it's not actually the product of what you might think of as a scientific process, which is to say a process that's based on evidence. It's the product instead of an ideological predisposition to like Lenin, right? So we have an idea or a model of the humanities. We have an idea or model of the humanities that seems pretty influential. I, I assume those of you who are in the humanities have had this experience and had the experience of someone telling you essentially, oh, you humanist, you're just lefty, whatever you believe, whatever you believe, but you don't really do knowledge. What you do is just a set of predispositions. Okay. So that's an interesting enough story. I tell it because I think it's central to the role and function that the humanities play in our society today and indeed within the university as well as without it. That is, you don't have to go find the governor of Georgia saying that people who major in women's studies shouldn't be given scholarship money from the state of Georgia because women's studies is a useless major, which he has said. Uh, well, not this governor, but the last governor. Uh, but you don't have to find someone like that to sort of say, oh, the humanities are under attack, even within the university. And even within, arguably, the humanities, people like, you know, Ron Rogowski, who's a historian, uh, dismiss, essentially, the notion that humanity, the humanities produce real knowledge. I realize I'm on the first slide, and this is whatever. I'll, I'll, I'll try to make it faster. The second thing that happens in that same year is I'm in a writing group and I'm writing a book at the time uh, it's called The Hypothetical Mandarin, which came out in 2009. And one of the things I say in that book is there's a sentence in that book that says, um, I am saying these things not because they align with my political positions, but because they're true. And my friend Mark, who was in the writing group with me, read that sentence. And so we were workshopping my chapter because we every month we would meet and we would workshops on this chapter. My friend Mark said, do you really want to say that you think things are true? Are you sure that you want to be that bold? And don't you, you know, don't you want to be careful about saying that you think things are true? So that's the, it's a short story, but it's a, an important story because it showcases, I think, really something very important about the humanities also is that this idea that the humanities don't have access to reason or that should be very, very careful about saying things are true or not true is not just then, in, if, if you look at the two stories I'm telling, something that's coming from outside the humanities is a kind of critique of the humanities from the outside, from economics or from a certain kind of social science historian, but actually something that's coming from inside the humanities as an argument about, in fact, the very nature of truth. That is, what is, you know, what is truth? Oughtn't we be, oughtn't we, ought to be, or shouldn't we be afraid of saying things are true? Shouldn't we be careful about that? Both as a matter of epistemological modesty, but also because it might get us in trouble, right? With our colleagues who, you know, frankly might feel like that's too arrogant or it's too epistemologically um, satisfied and so on and so forth. So those are the two stories. And I think what they showcase for me is the very strange position that the humanities are in relative to truth claims in the contemporary world, right? That is relative to their epistemological practices, their practices of knowing and researching, and relative to their claims to be able to say things are true or not true. Um, and we have a critique that's obviously stupid, uh, as, at least as far as I'm concerned, and annoying. It's coming from what you may think is the outside of the humanities. And then you have a critique equally uh, uh, interesting, but, but maybe more, even more interesting, it's coming from inside the humanities, right? Now, uh, okay, hold on, here we go. So the, as I say here in the slide, the second one emerged in the humanities itself. And I wanna kind of extend this idea um, of the humanities or of, of the humanities kind of commitment to a certain kind of epistemological claim. Um, 
in, in two ways. The first involves the story about my friend Mark saying, hey, don't say things, you know, maybe you should be careful. You don't want to say things that are true. You, have to be near, you don't want to say things that you think are, are true. Um, and the second one is the humanist tendency to claim um, that it's best to treat texts or objects of our research on their own terms. This on their own terms phrase is really central, I think, to the ideology of the humanities. That is the, the epistemological ideology, right? Which is to say that the set of ideas that govern in, in a relatively unconscious way frequently how we think we know. And so, you know, again, if you want to make an audience of humanists not along with your talk, one of the things you can say at, uh, at a public lecture is, you know, I'm really trying to treat this object on its own terms. I'm really, and one of the ways to make humanists angry is to say, I'm really trying to impose on this object some theories that I'm bringing to it from the outside. Okay. I, in the book, I make a much longer argument about the ways in which number one here on this slide and number two are connected. But part of what I want to just say to you now is that my assertion for now, my assertion that is that it is true that one, humanists often tell other humanists to be very careful about making truth claims, and two, it is true that humanists are often very oriented towards justifying their methodological approach by saying that it is taking its methods from the object that it's studying. This is one of the reasons why historically humanists have resisted things, all kinds of large-scale uh, patterns or structures of analysis, not only quantitative or statistical analysis, but things like structuralism, things like um, cleometrics in history, uh, things like the digital humanities uh, today in the quantitative analysis of text. Okay, so that's where I think the humanities are. And what I'm doing is writing a book about the history of what I'm calling a meta-discourse, right? Which is to say a discourse about human, the humanities, a, a humanist meta-discourse. The history of those two ideas that we've seen on the previous slide. And um, which is say, you know, on the one hand, the idea of what you might call loosely relativism or contextualism. And secondly, the idea of um, th that the method, the, the method that you use to interpret an object should be drawn from the object itself. I'm interested in looking at the emergence historically of those two ideas and in thinking about how they work and how they lead us to the humanities as we have them today. This is not a talk or a book about the institutional place of the humanities in the university. Uh, it's a little bit about that, but it, it, this is not about the curriculum. It's not about uh, the departments. It's not about the multifaceted division of the humanities into fields or the division of the university into fields are important and I've talked about them a little bit I talked about them yesterday in the, in the, in the workshop that we did um, I'm talking about them a little bit in the book but it's really a book about the history the intellectual history of the justifications for the humanities as we inherit them from my argument is the late 1800s and part of what I'm trying to do in the book is to make a claim or make a just a series of justified claims for what I'm calling humanist reason. So why reason? Um, I think I'm really interested in reclaiming and in picking up the word reason, which I, I recognize for all kinds of reasons has a negatively valued history in the humanities, mainly because it's associated with scientific positivism, because it's associated with Eurocentrism, because it's associated with dominance. 
And I think that you know, Hume's critiques of reason are completely reasonable. That is, I think they're right and true. Um, but I think that then the fact that some people have done it wrong, have done what I'm, what, what I'm calling reason wrong, does not mean that reason itself ought to be abandoned. I think when humanists critique reason, which they do all the time, and with very good reason, that part of what they do then is they then say, as my friend Mark does, you shouldn't say things are true, you shouldn't say things are reasonable, because this is kind of epistemologically suspect. I think that's a real rhetorical mistake. But I also think it's actually not um, something that most humanists actually believe. So part of what I want to say about these two ideas back here is that, in fact, neither of them is actually practiced or believed in a real serious way by any actual humanist, including people who say that they believe in these ideas. And what I mean by that is this, that humanists say things that are true all the time. My friend Mark, in fact, has written a book. Uh, I've read parts of the book. I've read actually most of the book. He says things that are true that he thinks are true all the time. He never says he thinks they're true, but he thinks they're true. That is, he says, you know, that this is the effect that the gramophone uh, had on the emerging media ecology of the 19 teens and 20s. He thinks that's true. He doesn't think it's false. He thinks it's true. And he thinks it's true on the basis of a set of procedures that he's using to make things true. Anyone who's ever written a book or an article about a poem or taught a class uh, is saying true things all the time, things they think are true. Now, maybe they're not supposed to say they think they're true, but they're saying true things all the time. If you say that, you know, Flaubert had this influence on um, the literature of the 20th century, or if you say that Chinese literature had this influence on Chinese classical poetry, had this influence on uh, Korean poetry, or Japanese poetry, you're saying things you think are true. If you're saying things like, uh, you know, the ideology of the 1920s was responsible for the development of a new kind of human being, who I'm going to call the something, you know, or, or I'm going to call a Victorian, I mean, it's the 1820s uh, or the 1850s, I'm going to call it Victorian, you're saying things that are true. Humanists are saying things they think are true all the time all the time. There's no way not to live and be saying things that are true. So there's an interesting, it seems to me, distinction or, 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 or gap between what you might think of as humanist uh, meta-discourse about the humanities, don't say things that are true, be careful, uh, and humanist practice of the humanities, which involves saying things that are true all the time. And not just true because I feel them. Again, like I like vanilla ice cream isn't a true statement. Well, I mean, it is a true statement about my liking, but it's not a true statement. Vanilla ice cream tastes good is not a true statement. Right, tastes good to me. But when I'm saying something is true, I'm saying it's true for everybody. My point is, you know, if I say Flaubert had this influence on the literature of the 20th century, my point is that's true for everyone. It's not just true for me. It's not a feeling or taste that I have. Right? And humanists do this all the time. The second thing is that humanists, though they say they should treat texts on their own terms, always, always, always treat texts not on their own terms. And the reason or the way that they do that is, of course, because it's impossible to do humanistic research without, in fact, bringing to the text a series of concepts about which the humanist scholar often knows much, much more than the text itself. So again, any novel written at any time or any cultural document written at any time necessarily, right, necessarily at the moment it's produced knows less about it than the person who reads it two days later or a week later or a month later or a century later or 250 years later, because in fact, the person who reads it and comments on it and writes about it 250 years later knows, among other things, all the things that happened after that novel was published. In addition to which, of course, many things are written that don't in fact know words like, I don't know, the unconscious, 
Nonetheless, you can read Freud and you can use Freudian concepts to interpret the literature of the 17th century, 16th century, and not be particularly anachronistic. You can talk about the cinematic point of view of some Chaucer story, even though Chaucer had never heard of the cinema. Right? You also know the history of literature and the history of England in a way that Chaucer himself could not and did not, and the history of the English language in a way that Chaucer himself could and did not. For instance, you know that Chaucer's English was influenced by the Norman invasion of 1066 in ways that Chaucer may or may not have been aware of. He certainly didn't need to be aware of it to write the Canterbury Tales. The point is, therefore, that even when, even as humanists are saying things like we should treat objects on their own terms, they never actually do fully. Right? They do a little bit, but they never do it fully, and it can't be done fully. It can't be done. So part of what we have then is we have a discourse of humanist reason that, and, and again, normally when you catch someone being a hypocrite, right, most of the time in the United States, I don't know how it is in other places, when you catch someone being a hypocrite, they, they say, you know, you shouldn't, um, uh, you shouldn't uh, uh, drink whiskey on Sundays, and then you catch them drinking whiskey on Sundays. And then, and then you say, look, you're a hypocrite. You said this one thing and you did another thing. And normally what we want hypocrites to do is to reconcile their behavior with their language. You said this thing, but you did this other thing. You should change the thing you did to be more like the thing you said, right? That's what we tell hypocrites. But what I'm arguing is that if in fact humanists keep saying one and two here, but keep not doing them, that maybe what we need is actually a different theory of what the humanist activity of scholarship is, of what humanist epistemology is, that would in fact correspond to the reality of humanist practice rather than the story that humanists tell themselves and each other about what they're doing. So instead of the hypocrisy, so my claim to the guy who's drinking whiskey on Sundays is, I think you need to change your rule. Maybe you should make a rule saying it's okay to drink whiskey on Sundays, because obviously you think it's okay, because if you didn't think it's okay, you wouldn't be drinking whiskey on Sundays. Right? Likewise, the humanists. Obviously, you think it's okay to say things you think are true. Obviously, you think it's okay to treat the text not on its own terms because you're doing it constantly. So what happens if we develop a theory of humanist reason that comes out of humanist practice rather than humanist metadiscourse? Right? Why reason? Because I think humanists have foregone foolishly the idea of reason in a scientific society. They have a great critique of, of many of the uses of reason. They, that, that's a, it's valuable and important. But there are ways to think about what reason means that are more sophisticated than the stupid versions that we critique. And I think that we should do those things. That's what I talk about it in the book. Uh, the main thing I will say is that all reason, and my argument is that reason is always subjective, but nonetheless, it is a subjective attempt to put things into a common space. So I draw this from Max Weber. Weber talks about reason as always emerging from a set of subjective interests, reasoning and research, uh, uh, moving from a point of subjective interest that is what I'm interested in, what I care about. And why do I care about it? I care about it because it matters to the society that I live in, right? I, I, I I, I'm not interested in, um, if I, I imagine that I'm doing research on the difference between Athens and Sparta, even if I'm doing that, I'm interested in, not because I'm fighting some fight that the Athenians and the Spartans were up to, uh, uh, or because I'm still interested in like re-adjudicating the Peloponnesian War against the Persians, but because I am invested in making some set of claims in relation to some set of social needs that exist in my time. There is no reason, no reasoning, Weber writes, and he's a relativist in this sense, that does not emerge from a personal need or drive and a historical situation. And at the same time, when one reasons what one is doing, and this is why this is the name of reason for me, 
what one is doing is trying to say things that could be true for everyone. Right? That could be true, that don't have to be true, but that could be true for everyone. And that's the mysterious transition between the subjective and objective processes of reason. Weber says at one point, you know, if I say something that I'm trying to make a claim, that has to be something that could be accepted by anyone in the world, even, he says, a Chinese person, who might then think it was true. Now, leaving aside the idea that a Chinese person is the weirdest, most different person you can imagine, that part of what he's getting at, which I think is quite right, is that one of the fundamental claims of reason is that this could be true for anyone. And I would add to that, and what I add in the book, is that what's really critical about reason and reasoning as I'm describing them here, is that reason is necessarily dialogic. So as I argue in the book that the humanist theory of reason, that is the theory that's encapsulated and inculcated in humanist classrooms and in humanist scholarship, is a theory of reason that insists A, that reason is subjective but can become objective, and B, that any act of reasoning is always subject to counter discourse and dialogue. Meaning that, what I, when I say, what I mean, again, this is what I mean by reason, meaning this, that if I teach you something, that you could hear that, learn it, agree with me, and then teach me back something about that same thing that I did not know. This is really the key, that re the way reasoning works as I understand it, and I think as humanist practice actually understands it if you look at what happens in the humanist classroom, is that it is not a one-way transfer of knowledge of the type that happens when I ask you to memorize a bunch of facts and then check that you've memorized them. It is rather an attempt to teach a set of practices, ways of thinking and ideas that then, once they're well taught, could be then changed by the person who was initially taught them such that the person who initially did the teaching could then have their mind changed about the very thing that they thought they were an expert on. That's reason. Which is to say, right, that it's an interpersonal but objective process. That it's a democratic process in which anyone can participate. And that it's a dialogic process that does not exist in a monologue, even though I'm monologuing with you now, but you'll have your chance to, answer, to ask questions, right? But that does not exist in a monologue, but exists only in relation to a potential dialogue between people who then are assumed to be equal partners in the subjective objective process of reason. Now get to some of the book. First part of the book is a history of how the meta discourse that I've described back here in one and two develops. And my argument is that it develops during a period in German intellectual history known as the Methodenstreit. Methodenstreit just means method fight, method strife. Um, it comes from a moment in the 1870s and 80s when the German university is confronted for the first time of with the situation that Chad Wellman and Paul Ryder have called the situation of the modern humanities. And that is the situation in which the humanities are confronted with the rise of the social sciences. So those of you who don't know about the history of the university have to know, I'm sure many of you know, that the social sciences do not exist before the mid 1800s, right? So even as the realm of knowledge is being divided from the mid 1600s forward between the natural sciences and the philosophical sciences, the social sciences have not yet emerged in the institution of the university in ways that they emerged beginning in the 1850s and through the late 19th century. 
And so part of my argument is that the meta discourse of human of, of, of the humanities and of humanist epistemology that develops at the time is very specifically a response to an institutional situation, which is the first time in which the humanities confront and again, by the humanities, I mean mainly history and literature, not even necessarily philosophy in some respects, but history, including art history, uh, confront their place in the modern knowledge economy in a world that includes the natural sciences and the social sciences. Okay, so that's that would be my my argument, and I, I talk about that in the book, but whatever, that would take too long, so I'll skip it. So, and then part two of the book, uh, uh, which I don't even have a slide for, is a long argument about the philosophical roots of this Methodenschreit, uh, which I argue uh, go back to the work of Immanuel Kant, which again, I'm not gonna talk about. Part three of the book then attempts to having, basically, basically part two of the book says, this is the history of this thing. And part two says, these are the grounds on which this thing seemed reasonable. And then it engages in a kind of argument about whether those grounds are reasonable or not. In fact, I, my claim would be, uh, uh, that they're not reasonable and, and I make a sort of set of arguments why. And so I've essentially, by the end of part two, attempted to dismantle both the historical and philosophical foundations of the humanist meta discourse that, again, doesn't just believe these two things, but believes these two things and believes them. I mean, these two things are figures for a whole host of things that the humanist meta discourse believes. Um, and so I've done that and I get to the part of the book called Articles of Reason. And the Articles of Reason part of the book is uh, a list of nine things. For all you know, by the way, this is vodka. Um, the, um, a list of nine things that I think are essentially things that humanists believe. So what I'm trying to do in the Articles of Reason section of the book is to really describe, but at a level of depth and seriousness that makes these descriptions both things you will recognize, but also that you'll say, oh yeah, I guess that's true, but I hadn't really thought of it that way. Uh, what humanists uh, believe, that is the underlying structures that govern the practice of humanistic teaching and thinking and writing, okay? Uh, there are nine of these. I only talk about, I think, three or four of them in this talk because uh, we've probably gone on too long already. In any case, uh, they start from the most obvious one. So I'll start with the most obvious one, so context. So that's something, again, that if you're a faculty member in the humanities, I think you believe, and I'll just claim that you believe this, that all historical activity is determined by an embedded context. Contextual determination is always partial and therefore never total. So part of what this is saying is everything's contextual and everything's historical. That is everything, anything, the meaning of anything, the value of anything, the effect of anything, is determined by its context, but only partially because within that determination, there are always degrees of freedom, right? And I'm gonna say something now that I say over and over in the book, which is the reason humanists believe this is not because they're Leninists. In fact, I don't know if Lenin believed this, not because they have an ideological predisposition to believe this. The reason that humanists believe this is on the basis of their analysis of existing historical and cultural evidence. So why do humanists believe that context is both determining but also not fully determining? They believe it because their analyses of historical activity show over and over the powerfully determining effects of context and show over and over that in many situations in which you might think that some set of contexts had achieved total dominance and created a total lack of surprise, nonetheless, surprise emerges from history. 
And historians and literature scholars, cultural scholars, art historians, do not think that this surprise is merely a matter of or a result of the fact that we have bad methods, which certain positivist kind of scientific historians have thought, right? That is, modern historians, modern literature scholars don't think that if we just could correctly measure all the variables, we would then restore to history its necessarily fully determined nature. What we believe is, in fact, that history can never fully be determined. Okay, part of what his humanists then do, right, is then to measure and think about the, the structure of contextual determinism that creates or shapes any given historical situation. Because to understand the meaning of any individual event or any individual social process or an individual cultural artifact is to understand, in fact, both the context from which it emerged, but also what you might think of as the meta context or the meta set of determinations that help us decide what it means and how it works. Okay, what does this imply? One of the things it really critically implies, and again, I think you'll just, if you think about humanistic work, what contextualization implies is that all humanist analysis of the past will include and necessarily includes a study of the non-actualized possibilities of that context. Meaning, right, that if humanists do work, they must necessarily do work not only on what happened, but also on what didn't happen, but might have happened. So Virginia Woolf writes a bunch of novels, right? At some point, every time she writes a novel, we think, why is Jacob's Room not like The Voyage Out? What happened? Why is it not like it? What novels could Virginia Woolf have written instead of, instead of The Voyage Out or instead of Jacob's Room that she didn't write? What could have happened? And the meaning, and to understand Jacob's Room or The Voyage Out or any of the other novels, right, is to understand all of the things that Virginia Woolf could have done but didn't do. Right now, again, this study of non-actualized possibilities that I'm describing is totally normal, it's totally uh, acceptable, it's completely part of what we understand as epistemological work in the humanities. Why is it necessary? It's not necessary because we're Leninists, it's necessary because to understand something is to understand the things that it could have been but wasn't. And the range of what it could have been but wasn't is obviously constrained. There are things that it almost could have been but wasn't. There are things that it probably, you know, again, we don't have to consider seriously what if a moon rock had fallen on Virginia Woolf's head. That's not an actualized possibility that we think about. Even the set of possibilities is itself contextual. So what this implies, that's so the corollary of our investment in context, is that the feminist critique of disembodied knowledge is right. Uh, that is, by the way, I, I hand draw all these slides, obviously. That is so crappy a picture of my beloved advisor, Jane Gallup, uh, on the bottom left of your screen. I apologize, Jane and everyone else for it, but like I'd gotten all the other slides done at some point a couple of years ago whenever, whenever I first did these pictures, maybe a year ago. And um, I just thought I can't, like, I don't know. I tried a couple of times to draw Jane and I, I'm terrible at it. So I think I love Jane and that's not what she looks like. So if you ever meet her, don't be surprised. In any case, uh, uh, but she's, she was a feminist critic. So I, that's why she's on the slide. The feminist critique of disembodied knowledge is, is correct. And again, I think that this is something humanists generally believe, but in a complicated way. And it goes back to the question of reason, right? So there's a feminist critique of Cartesian knowledge structures that says basically, you know, Cartesian knowledge sort of models say basically there's knowledge that's disembodied 
and then there are feelings and other kinds of structures that are embodied in particular and we don't trust those but what we trust is knowledge that's disembodied and you know the feminist critique would be look your story about disembodied knowledge turns out just to be a, a sort of uh, cover for masculine knowledge uh, in fact that it's it's uh, the pretense of masculine universality. Um, and so though it looks democratic, it's only democratic insofar as everyone can participate in public life if they're a man uh, or if they act like a man. Uh, and and the, the point that, that feminists of my advisor Jane's generation made, which is Jane's still alive and well and working and writing new books, but um, you know, in, in the 70s and 80s and 90s was to say you know, that knowledge is embodied, all knowledge is embodied. And this goes back to this basic idea that all, all activity, all human activity is contextualized. But that does not mean, because you can imagine a certain version of that, that claim that says something like, because we all know from our bodies and ourselves, therefore no knowledge is shareable, right? My man's knowledge from State College, Pennsylvania in my house in April, 2020 is not shareable with an African-American person's knowledge in 1919 uh, in you know, Alabama. But the point is not that, because of course that leads you down a road in which no one can know anything and there's no public reason, there's no form of democratic or common reason but rather that even though we know from our bodies, even though we know from our bodies, nonetheless, that knowledge that comes from bodies has the right to and the capacity to be public and common, right? So the point is not that Descartes knows Descartes things and Jane Gallup knows Jane Gallup things, but that Jane Gallup knowing from her body in one of Jane's books is actually called Thinking Through the Body. And I should say on the cover of that book, Jane uh, is a photograph of Jane's son, Max, at the moment at which he's crowning. Uh, so Jane always found a good pun. But that, that in fact, thinking through the body does not mean, first of all, that Jane is thinking through the body, but also Descartes is thinking through the body. But that thinking through the body does not mean that we're producing knowledge that's unique or totally subjective, but rather that all knowledge that can be shared in common is thought through a body of some kind. And nonetheless, we have a common. Okay, that's enough about common. What do humanists think about causality? We think causality is kind of a scientific uh, uh, structure, but we humanists think that causality is multiscalar. What does that mean? I mean that causality is um, the product of a series of interacting structures that act at different levels. Um, so, you know, why am I here in front of you? Well, you know, on the one hand, I'm here in front of you because of a series of uh, events that are happening at a very, a very human interpersonal scale. Scott invited me give, to give a talk to you and you're here because some of you have been required to be here by other people and some of you want to be here. Um, but of course, you know, we're also here because of the structure of 21st century capitalism, which is, you know, a scale and technology, which is a scale that's operating far above the level of our individual humanity. And we're also here because, uh, because of COVID-19, uh, which is to say we're here because of a virus that's operating at a scale that is uh, far lower in some respects, uh, just in terms of size, uh, uh, than our common humanity. And so, you know, when humanists think about scale, part of what we're thinking about very frequently, and in, in contrast to, for instance, the kind of model of scale that you tend to get in the physical sciences, which tends to be really um, primarily operating at one level, uh, or the model of causality that you get operating, if you think about, you know, billiard balls on a, on a, on a pool table, right? But the causality and the causal structures, you don't ask, well, why are the billiard balls on the pool table, or what kinds of economic structures allow people to have billiard tables in the first place? You leave all that aside to focus on this very specific sort of scale, you know, reactions that happen in a single scale. For us, of course, that's not how we think and how we work. And that's why humanist causality is complicated. If you say to a humanist, did 
uh, Gavriel Princip's shooting of the Archduke Ferdinand cause World War I? On the one hand, the answer is yes. But if you ask if Gavriel Princip had not shot, shot the Archduke Ferdinand in 1914, would World War I still have happened? And I think that for most of us, the answer is kind of maybe could happen, and it could happen in some of the same ways. Right, that what we understand is that the causes of World War I, though, of course, it's easy as a story to tell are down to Gavro Princip. Uh, but in fact, the causes of World War I are operating at much larger scales than just that scale. And so it may well be that if you remove the cause of one scale, uh, at one scale, you could still get the causes at another scale. Right, so this is humanist causality. Uh, it translates in the ways that I'm describing across levels. That is, the causality moves and crosses from level to level. It crosses from the level of the unconscious to the conscious, but also to the sort of structural, the geographical, the, the level of class, or at the level of ideology. Uh, it is over and underdetermined in precisely the ways I've described. So overdetermined in the sense that humanist causality doesn't add up to 100% necessarily, or it can add up to more than 100%. Uh, we can see many of the same causes taking place and not producing the same events. Uh, and it's undetermined in the sense that causes are never necessarily sufficient to explain the action that we uh, describe and then non-deterministic and bi-directional. The reason the butterfly is on this slide is because apparently this slide is a critique of the so-called butterfly effect concept. The butterfly effect to me Every typical moment in which the sciences discover something that the humanities have known for a long time, but then they like discover and announce that it's true, and it was like, oh my God, that was true, and then they get to name it. You know, the idea that at some some small thing, what's the cause of the butterfly effect? If some butterfly flaps its wings, it causes a chain reaction of wind movements that at the end leads to a you know a tornado or a typhoon or whatever the God knows where butterfly. And always, whenever they put the butterfly, they put the butterfly like in some far place and they put the typhoon in some other place or the tornado, right? This is actually, for all its sort of alleged complexity, a very, very simple idea of causality, which is basically the same idea of causality that's in like the game of mousetrap. A, you know, a marble knocks down a domino, it knocks down a bunch of other dominoes, it causes a ball to drop in a basket, it drops a piece of cheese, whatever, whatever. At the end of the day, the mouse is caught, boom. Completely physical, completely simple. Whereas, if I say to you, right, someday in the 10th century, some Chinese poet wrote a poem about uh, a butterfly, let's say, and that poem was then repeated in all kinds of ways to the point that eventually in the 20th century it became integrated into school curriculum. And then students were made to memorize this poem. And then one kid was supposed to memorize it and he didn't memorize it very well and he got in trouble at school. And when he came home, he kicked his dog. What caused the kicking of the dog? Well, think about how incredibly complicated that is. You, you know, in terms of levels, right? As opposed to a series of physical reactions, what you have is a poem, a single poem being written, already complicated, right? Then that poem fitting into a culture such that it becomes elevated and retained, right? And then becomes a model for all the kinds of poems about butterflies, let's say, that continue for centuries across a wide variety of causal structures involving, you know, again, emperors putting the poem in books or not putting the poem in books and so on and so forth that lead then to the development of modern institutional schooling that lead to this boy that lead to him going to school and him not being a good student for why why is he not a good student that day maybe he's just upset maybe he can't concentrate because of COVID-19 maybe his parents are jerks or maybe he's just not a very good student not very good at memorizing poetry whatever all that stuff coming back to the dog getting kicked that's the kind of causality humanists deal with and again part of my point here I'm going to say this another at least one more time 
is that the reason we have this complex theory of causality is not because we like it or because we're Leninist. It's because the evidence in front of us over and over shows us that this is how causality works. Okay. God, I don't know how long. I, I, I actually have no clock. Oh, I have this clock behind me. Oh my God, okay. Um, that's actually, okay, I'm, I'm doing a little better than I thought I was. Uh, okay, let's see where we are. Okay, uh, I'll talk about primary and secondary very briefly. Uh, Aristotle makes a distinction. This is another thing humanists believe. Aristotle makes a very useful distinction at one point. Um, and the distinction is very simple. It's, it, he says, look, if you have a marble statue, the shape of the statue is a big deal. How much the statue weighs is not that big a deal, right? You know, no one says, like, no one looks at David and is like, oh, that's a great statue of David. How much does it weigh? Whereas if you have a piece of marble that is being a weight at the marketplace that's supposed to weigh a kilo or whatever the Greeks were using, that no one says like, well, I know it weighs a kilo, but what does it look like, right? So the point is just that in, in this case, of the statue, the shape is primary and the weight is secondary. In the case of the weight, the weight is primary and the shape is secondary. Great. This is true of all kinds of human activity and humanist evidence. A lot of what humanists do is try to understand how things work on the basis of the various overlapping primary and secondary in the Aristotelian sense, uh, forms of causality and structure that are organizing them. So, you know, I remember my friend Laura Berry once telling me that, and again, whether this is true or not doesn't really matter because you can imagine it could be true, uh, that she had noticed during the Iraq war that her son and his friends were playing more war games at recess in the schoolyard. You know, those of you who are my age or older remember that people used to play cowboys and Indians. I don't actually think people play cowboys and Indians, maybe in Wyoming, uh, 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 but in general, you know, things, the kinds of games children play are influenced by large scale social structures of which children themselves may not be aware. Primary, secondary, right? The game they're playing is primary. The cause or the structure that's underlying the activity of the game is secondary. This is true for all kinds of things. It's true of the idea of modernism, the idea of the being the Victorian, what it means to when we talk about the post-war. You know, no one who's in the post-war, no one's in the Bronze Age, looks around and says, guys, we're in the Bronze Age. We've got to be better than this. Right? There's a secondary structure that we've identified, you know, after the fact that we understand as a structure of causality. Um, that is, you know, that is meaningful. And so a lot of what we do in the humanities is to try to understand the way in which the primary and the secondary are interacting in any given document or social process or um, historical moment, and then to describe them. Uh, I'll come back to this in a moment. Um, I'm going to let this slide be because I want to, I want to come to an end. So one of the things I talk about in the book, the last thing that we're, we're going to talk about here is um, the idea of value. And I think we live in a world where the idea of scientific value is very clear. You say, what's the value of science? So when science is clearly valuable in these ways, and so what makes science valuable is, you know, a, a, Um, uh, which is something like, you know, what makes science valuable to scientists? So, you know, something that has the right kind of data set, the right kind of argument, so on and so forth. But then what makes science valuable to humanity in general? 
And then, you know, then you come very quickly to this idea of we have, you know, we have vaccines that work, we have medical care, we have bridges that don't fall down, and so on. The Romans also had bridges that don't fall down. So part of what I would say is that before we get to the question of epistemology, that the humanities are unquestionably valuable. Um, and my go-to example for this for the last few years has been the following, that you know, one of the ways we think of the sciences as valuable is because we think they're effective, right? They create effects in the world. And then people say, well, the humanities, what are you doing? It's all masturbatory, um, you know, uh, stuff. You just kind of, whatever, you're just kind of pleasing each other and, or yourselves. But I doubt that there is anyone on this planet whose experience of their own gender identity has not been affected by the work that the feminists and queer theorists of the 70s and 80s and 90s have done. And I mean this not only for all the people who've read that work, but for all the laws that have been passed, the social institutions that have changed, the grant programs and forms of government intervention that have changed. There is not a single person on this planet, I'm arguing, who has somehow managed to escape the effectiveness, for good or for ill, of the humanist critique of gender, right? So if we're asking what is the value of the humanities, now again, you can imagine someone saying, well, I like the traditional gender role, so I don't like that value, but the, there's no doubt to me that the humanities are effective in a real world way, in a real world way, very profoundly effective. And that's not just true of gender, although gender is an easy one, but it's true of race, it's true of notions of power, it's true of notions of the, how language works, of the self and the other. I mean, again, think about Freud. Who hasn't been touched by Freud? And, or, you know, and again, there's some people who probably haven't, but the vast majority of humanity has been touched by that idea. Democracy is a humanist idea. The idea of the environment is a humanist idea. Um, humanists had that idea first, before scientists did. Uh, so, you know, when we think about value that the humanities are producing, this is part of the, uh, the case I would make. But more close to home, I was thinking, what makes value for humanists for each other? And I, I think it's these three things that I'm describing here. Um, one is that humanists value work that increases our understanding of the richness of objects or moments or social processes. That is to say, anyone who does work where they say, you think that this is, that you have a, you have a certain understanding of this thing, but what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna make this understanding more complex and rich. Humanists like that, right? I'm just, you've got, a, you've got an image and it's a 300 by 200 image. I'm gonna blow it up to like, you know, um, 1920 by 1080, and you're gonna be able to see things in the image you couldn't see before. That's essentially one of the functions of humanist work. Two, I'll talk about this one. I think that one of the things that humanities work does is that it makes secondary forms of cultural causality primary. That is to say, it, think, it says to people, you thought that your relation to your gender was about this or that or the other thing, but in fact, there are these larger scale social structures of which you're unaware that are shaping your reality. And by describing those things, humanities turn those things, which are secondary and essentially unconscious or unintentional, into primary things, that is to say, things that can be manipulated, interacted with, and changed. So this kind of value for humanist work is the, the value of the political possibility of humanist work. 
The third thing I think that humanist work is really values in a critical way is what I'm calling comparability or translatability. And what I mean by that is that work that, and this is in some weird sense against that idea that you're treating the text on its own terms, right? And to say, what do humanists really, really love? They love work that's not about, let's imagine that I write, I write some essay or book about some obscure novel you've never heard of. If you say, what's the value of this? I'm like, well, you're gonna know a lot about that novel. Great, that's number one, okay, that's richness. But if I say, by reading about this novel, what you're gonna be able to do is take the ideas that you learn in my reading or discussion of this novel, or again, our historical moment, and you're gonna be able to carry them over to other contexts that are not this novel, but other novels, or other moments historically, or whatever they are, and use them there. That that is a really a central figure for humanist value. That is, if you create concepts that are portable on the basis of your attention to individual works, you create concepts that can be carried over to other works. That's a really critical feature of what humanists value about uh, each other. So let me, uh, let me almost stop there and say that, that you know, there's more in the book, but that what I'm trying to do above all else is to create for you, this audience, but for humanists in general, a picture of their own work that is uh, robust, um, that is in some respects aggressive relative to the stories that I started out with, that is relative to both the Waxiarg-Rogowski story, uh, which is our clear enemy, but relative also to the story that we tell ourselves. Part of my argument in the book is that the story that humanists tell ourselves about what they're doing or what, what we're doing is a, a, a really significant mistake and misunderstanding of what we're actually doing. And my argument then is that if you re-describe the humanities in the way that I'm describing, you end up with a really empowering, at least for me, vision of what we do that gives us a new way to think about the work we're doing, think about the writing we're doing, and also really importantly, think in a different way about the teaching we're doing and why the teaching we're doing matters not only uh, uh, to our students, but to the social in general, but also to the general process of the production of knowledge and reason that for so much of our society today is instead deemed to belong only to the work of the quantitative uh, forms of knowledge that are in the social sciences or the natural sciences. So that's what I'm hoping to do. Um, I am really eager to hear your thoughts and your questions. Uh, thanks very much, all those of you who are still here. Uh, I'm going to stop sharing the screen now, or I'll at least I'll move on to the final slide because there's some fun pictures. Um, and again, thank you very much. And we'll open it up to uh, questions. Okay. Thank you, Eric, for all of that. I, you know, uh, as the two people who can be seen, I'm going to clap for you, and I'm going to imagine that other people are clapping for you too. Thanks. Uh, and I'm going to remind everyone who is listening that they can type their questions uh, into the chat bar. Uh, there's a couple of them already. Uh, and maybe uh, uh, I will linger over a question of my own that I'm dying to ask and give people uh, a moment to type more questions in. And then uh, once we're here, yes, I see uh, in the chat, people are clapping. Thank you very much. Um, uh, uh, Eric, I love this essay. Uh, by the great humanist thinker of our time, Corey Robin, called Reclaiming the Politics of Freedom. And mm -hmm. he makes uh, an analogous argument to what you made earlier, 
that just because a term has come under such critique and maybe, I don't know, maybe you and I are of the generation of scholars for whom critique, we were trained in critique, like critique, critique, critique. But on the mm -hmm. other end of the critique is like claiming something. Robin's argument in this essay is like, just because someone else with whom you don't agree has claimed a term doesn't mean that you don't get to use it too. You can't redefine it. So ultimately, this is a question about your methodology. I'm hoping you can talk a little bit more about your methodology because can you see my screen when I hold? Oh, yeah, yeah. When I hold, yeah, yeah. right? I mean, Sh Carl Schmitt's book, Dictatorship, is the, is, the, is the fascist argument for reason. Right. But he doesn't own that term. Right. Doesn't right. own that term. And for him, it's not dialogic, it's not di democratic. So to reclaim it and to reinterpret it, I mean, this, so in other words, please talk about the methodology behind this because I think it's fascinating and super important. Well, so I mean, part of, part of I, I mean, I think you're right. I mean, I, I think one of the things that really, uh, you know, I didn't set out to write this book. I kind of wandered into it as I was trying to think about these things. But I, I think that one of the things that I feel really, really strongly is that the human, the humanities in general need an epistemologically rounded um, way to talk about themselves that, that does not feel like special pleading. I feel like so much of what the humanities do when they talk about themselves is it feels like people kind of begging people to be nice to them. And I'm, you know, much more interested in a kind of, I mean, one of the things that I think this book is trying to do is to present a much more aggressive or, or, or you know, to play offense instead of playing defense is the way that I describe it sometimes. Um, I, you know, I think, I understand, obviously, I, I'm weaned on and, and raised on the humanist, the feminist critique, the Foucauldian critique of power knowledge structures um, and, and so on. Uh, um, that, you know, so, but that then having moved through those, it's very, very clear to me that nonetheless humanists are doing something and attempting, we can, we can, we don't always get it right. And that's one of the, you know, it's, it's good that we notice that we don't always get it right. And then we criticize each other and try to do better, but we clearly believe in something. And I think that we need to articulate that belief rather than being afraid of that belief. Now, again, a very simple example, if you Google or if you ask any school child in America, what's the scientific method? They can all tell you. And if you Google it, or if you go to Wikipedia, you will find a very clear definition of the scientific method. Now, again, science is more complicated than the scientific method, fine, right? But everyone knows there is one. You know, my colleague, Michael Barabay is very fond of saying that science questions, epistemological questions and sciences are super easy because their objects are so damn simple. Part of my argument would be this, that our objects are complicated as hell. And the reason they're complicated is mostly because they have minds. But if you, if I read you, or if I told you about a planet and I said, oh, this planet has a theory of knowledge called whatever, it doesn't matter, called, called you know, the, whatever, called their X theory of knowledge. They got a theory of knowledge and you'd say, oh, that's interesting. How did they get that? And they said, well, what they did was they looked at a bunch of inanimate objects and they thought about all the good rules for understanding those inanimate objects. And then they called that knowledge. And you would say, well, they didn't talk, look at any like objects with minds or inanimate objects. Nope, they just called all knowledge and reasoning the kind of reasoning that works best for things that don't have any uh, mental life. And you say, what a bunch of idiots. That's really obviously wrong and fucked up. 
from an epistemological point of view, from the very epistemological point of view that, that, that is then organizing the idea, right? So what is it? I mean, I know it's harder, although I, in the book, I actually write the Wikipedia entry for humanist reason uh, or, or the humanistic method, because I think that one of the things that we haven't done is made the affirmative case. I mean, I think this is the problem of critique is that, is that you know, that critique looks like negativity. It doesn't have to be. That's right. right? But it looks like negativity. Where we haven't made a good enough positive case for the work we're doing and why the work is reasonable. And again, you see in the facility with which Rogowski just says, that's because you're all Leninists, and then expects and gets from a couple of people in the room a laugh, how easy it is for them to make this dumb joke. I, you know, I, we, we need to, I, I'm not, I'm, I don't think that this is going to solve our problems. I don't think this is going to solve the enrollment problems necessarily or whatever. But I think, I, think I, I would like to give us language to help us fight for ourselves better. I, I really think that the main thing to say, and again, this is because I'm a feminist, that I don't think that feeling good about what you're doing is actually uh, not related to how you think. Right, you know, the, the feminist critique of, of the idea of pure thought as separated from feeling is in fact, the point is not therefore that you, you know, that all thought is feeling and therefore whatever, but actually that those of us who work on thought also need to work on feeling. And so a lot of the book for me is about changing the way that I feel and helping other people change the way they feel because I think that that will change the way they think. Um, because I think thinking and feeling are, are you know, are, are combined uh, structures. There's a question here uh, from somebody who says, can you articulate a case for those who view these explorations of our work as humanists as elite? Um, so I, I have two responses to that. I mean, I think that, that there's, you know, again, part of what happens with the humanities is that the sciences somehow are presented as non-elite and the humanities are presented as elite. And that's why, for instance, scientific jargon, right? You know, if you read a scientific paper in physics, it's incredibly difficult to understand, but no one complains that scientists are writing in jargony language that, and this is a sign of their, you know, their intellectual inferiority complex and so on and so forth, right? That part of the reason that the humanities are the subject of this critique is that the humanities actually do belong to everyone. Everyone is in culture. Not everyone does science in their ordinary life, but everyone is in culture and everyone experiences culture. And many people experience what, you know, Adorno would have thought of as a dumbed down, terrible version of that culture that gives them pleasure. And, and you know, I take, I take the, you know, the, the, the Stuart Hall critique of a certain kind of Adorno version seriously. But, I, I, you know, there, the, the thing that we all know is that when you say that you work on film, people think, well, why the hell do you need to work on that? I go to see movies all the time. I understand them perfectly well, right? And, and so that's, that's complicated. Whereas if you say I work on sort of, you know, viral, you know, the, the, the whatever, how viral or how viruses unlock the whatever, you know, like, well, I don't work on that. I don't, I've never been to that. I've never, I don't see that in my daily life. So part of the tricky thing about the humanities is that it is an elite in the sense of knowledge intensive, right? In the same way that, you know, someone who works as an auto mechanic is an elite version of someone who relates to autos, right? You know, I relate to my car in a very stupid way, 
uh, in a very you know simple way uh, that that the humanities are a kind of elite relationship in the sense of extensive requiring training requiring lots of work relation to something that actually a lot of people think they own and they do own and they ought to own so there is a tension there and any of you who've had students who've ever said things like you know I really love your class, but now when I watch a movie with my family, I say all this stuff and they tell me to shut up because I'm annoying them. We'll have exactly this experience of a kind of elitism. Now, we love those stories and, and those students are telling those stories to us not as not to say you shouldn't have taught me this stuff, but they're telling us because it makes them feel good, because they feel special, because they know these things and they feel proud of themselves and they know these things, even though they're of course problems. We all understand that. So I think that's the nature of the humanities. The other thing about the, the humanities is the nature of humanistic knowledge is that when we come up with something in the humanities and it's a really good idea, we don't patent it and it belongs to everyone. Imagine if Derrida had put a patent on the word deconstruction and gotten a dime every time one of us wanted to use it, right? But he didn't. And so now, you know, you're watching some TV show and some guy says he's going to deconstruct something and you're thinking like, I don't think you don't, but that's how it works because that's how democracy works and environmentalism works and gender works. And my daughter who's in sixth grade used the phrase gender queer the other day. Out of, you know, and like, you know, there were a bunch of people who suffered and worked really hard to make that word even possible to say, let alone write. And now people are just using it like whatever, like sixth graders, like I'm just using it however I want. That's the gift of the humanities. That's the, what we do ultimately doesn't belong to us, but it creates a kind of lack of recognition because anytime we do anything that's really good, people think, well, I've known that my whole life, even though they haven't. So that's a problem. The other thing I would say about the elitism and Paula Krebs, who's the head of the MLA has written about this in a really compelling way is I think there are forces in our society that are interested in um, for very obvious reasons, creating a culture of wealthy people who understand and have a rich relationship to the world and of workers who are essentially the Morlocks and the Eloy of the H.G. Wells story, if that's, I'm getting the author right, um, which is to say a class of elites who have access to education and a class of worker bees who don't understand uh, anything. And you know, they might not tell you that's what they believe, but clearly if you look at their policies, that's what they're trying to do. And I think that the humanities are a particular site of this. When you look at attacks, modern attacks on the university in the last 30 years, the attacks on the university are not attacks on the sciences, and they're not attacks on the business school, and they're not attacks on the accounting department. When people say that, you know, you know when Republicans are pulled in the United States and say they don't trust universities, what they don't trust are the humanists and the scientists, who are doing non-applied research, the climate scientists for, to some extent, but mainly they don't trust the humans, right? When you say you hate the university, well, I don't hate the university, I just hate these people in the university. Well, that's what they mean. So there's been, when, when people think of the humanities as elite, that's been the product of a lot of work. That's been the product of a lot of work. There's been a lot of effort put into that project. And, you know, part of our struggle as we fight against it is the minute we're non-elite, it doesn't look like the humanities anymore. It just looks like stuff that belongs to us. So we have to confront that and deal with that. 
Um, but the other thing to say is that in a, you know, I, I think one of the really important things is to say that in a good society, everyone ought to have access to the humanities. And there are lots of people who are very invested in turning access to the humanities itself into an elite opportunity, right? Which would actually, you know, because they basically say to people, look, if you're poor, you have to do a job major. And if you're rich, you get to study literature and culture, right? That that would itself redouble the very problem we're, we're addressing and talking to here. Okay, there are two comments. Um, uh, yeah, Michelle Sullivan, good friend of the humanities, okay. uh, writes, I wonder about how this moment in history is a bit of an opportunity. I've been listening in on my freshman college son exploring various issues, and honestly, I think he's thinking more deeply as the world becomes more uncertain. Be interested in how you think about the role the humanities can help germinate this. Well, so I'm, um, it's too bad that you weren't there yesterday. I mean, I, I actually have very specific institutional uh, uh, arguments about this. I mean, I think that one of the things the humanities have um, done wrong in the last hundred years, and I really understand, I mean, I understand the roots of the modern humanities and the decisions that were made around the humanities as in the United States, as resulting very, very clearly from this moment in 1880s Germany. And again, if you read the book or if you read the stuff they're writing about, I mean, I could take some of their language, translate it into modern English, and uh, you would, and I and tell you that it was written by someone, you know, yesterday in the blog at the Critical Inquiry, and you'd, get, you, you'd think I was completely right. I mean, it's, it's, it's remarkable how little the fundamental issues have changed. I think that one of the ways the humanities tried to compete with the sciences and the social sciences was by disciplining themselves in particular ways that mo were modeled on those fields. And I think that's been a real mistake. I think that, that at the core of the best that's going on in the humanities are not in fact the names of the disciplines, but are the ideas and the fundamental questions that are governing our contemporary lives and, 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 and connect us not only in the contemporary, but connect us to people who've been living you know, for as long as people have been living and self-aware. So I would not have the humanities departments as they are today. I would have humanities departments that, when, uh, that, that were basically responsible for running what you might think of as modules uh, of uh, uh, academic units that would be much more flexible and responsive to contemporary life, but would also be framed around the really important questions. Um, I, you know, I, think, I think, for instance, if you imagine a four course module called, you know, uh, are women real? And what kinds of courses might flow into that? Or, you know, uh, a, a module called, is there justice? Uh, or a module called, you know, humans and their environments? Or a module called, um, uh, you, know, I, I, you know, city city life that would have courses that go back to Babylon and come up to the present, right? That talk about the impact of these kinds of things. That, that is, I think that, and again, if you imagine someone majoring in humanities and saying, what do I want to know about? I want to know these kinds of things. No one ever says like, I want to know English. English doesn't mean anything. Or I want to know, you know, I want to know, if they say I want to know French, what they mean is the language, right? But I want to know history. It doesn't make any sense the kind of thing that you'd be excited about knowing about. You might decide you love it. But really what matters is I want to know about like how power and violence, I want to know how the world came to be the way it is. Those kinds of big questions are central to the humanities. And I think what the humanities did was they narrowed and focused, partly because they were in the institution the university, but partly because they were also modeling themselves on the sciences and social sciences, rather than in fact taking up ownership of these really fundamental questions. So I was saying yesterday to the group, I think that you know if I were at a university right now where I had this kind of control, 
I would say we're going to have a module. Imagine you can have modules more flexible because creating new majors is a big problem. We're going to have a module called pandemic life. And maybe that module will exist for 10 years or 20 years. And maybe it'll go away. I don't know. But that, you know, that would be the nice thing about the module. Is you can have, we're going to have six or seven courses that fit into this. We already have courses that work this way, um, you know, that, that could fit in, in all kinds of ways. So, you know, to me, you know, a 19-year-old or an 18-year-old or even a 30-year-old is coming back to college and saying, like, what do I want to understand and know about? That's for me what's the, you know, uh, a version of the, you know, of, of the humanities that would be very exciting. Anyway, so th those are, I mean, and, and I think that, you know, one, for me, one of the, the forms of power that, that, that we accede to there is to basically buy into and, and insist on our relevance to, you know, these questions which don't go away and which haven't gone away. And the reason we know we, they haven't gone away is because we have plenty of, again, historical evidence that people have been talking about them for at least 5,000 years. Um, so, you know, that for me is a, is a path forward for the humanities in the university. Um, anyway, I'm reading this next question about, uh, you know, white, white, wounded white masculinity. Yes. I mean, I will say this as, as a white man teaching. Eric, uh, if I may, the, um, the uh, attendees can't see the question. So maybe rephrase. Oh, sorry, sorry. Okay, so this is, a, this is a long question. I'm a, someone's asking basically Big Mac 2012, whatever that is, um, is asking about whether the rise of white supremacy, it was, so it says, the current rise of white supremacy and violence has something to do with subjects in process, especially white males who want to affirm their value and not be critiqued negatively. Fighting in white supremacist fight clubs or a celebration of their embodied thinking. Is there any chance that the article that the ideas you suggest could actually become involved in peace work by promoting the workbench at which a critique of violence might be delivered across the Antifa Proud Boys fighting line? I mean, I, you know, I, I will say this, that when, when I talk to my graduate students about teaching and when I talk to other people about teaching, one of the things I say is that everyone teaches from their body. And some people teach more from their body than others because of course some people are more embodied in our world than others, right? So the, the, the white men among us are the least embodied, that is have the most freedom to pretend that we're not teaching from a body. And I think one of the things that means for me as an ethical teacher is, is that I have to abandon and I try regularly on, on, when I'm teaching to abandon the privilege of that disembodiedness by reminding students of my body. Um, so, uh, and I do that in a variety of ways, but I refer to myself as white, I refer to myself as a man. I sometimes tell students a story about, um, uh, about how I used to weigh 280 pounds and I don't anymore and what that felt like. Um, and I'm, I, I try to make them see my body in the room as a body that's partial and that's still producing potentially knowledge for them and ideas for them. And this is especially important for me because I teach a class called Introduction to Video Game Culture, which um, uh, I'm teaching online right now, but I, last time I taught with 300 students in the room, I had about 30 or 40 women out of those 300 students and one humanities major. This is a big general education course. So a lot of men and a lot of white men and I am very aware that this is an opportunity for them to see a white man who is like them, a nerd and a computer gamer, um, and to be asked 
from that body to push themselves a little further than they have been, they might be willing to do if they were asked from a body that they didn't feel as comfortable with or that they didn't trust in quite the same way, past their own comfort and their own masculinity and their own whiteness, so that they could emerge on the other side to see one of the things that I try to teach all the time, which is that masculine dominance is a trap for men as much as it is for the, you know, the so-called victims of masculine dominance. And I, you know, I think that we, you know, I don't know that it always works and not all the students are happy and, but some of the students are moved and I know that they're moved because they tell me they're moved and I know that they're changed because they tell me they're changed. And I know also that they're not you know, that I'm free to do that and I'm free to play, you know, I, I, one of the things I've done as a teacher is I've gone to other people's classes. So I've watched, you know, an associate professor as a woman in biology teach a 300 person class because I was wanting to see how people teach and I was watching her teach. And obviously the way that she was embodied in that room, a white woman as an associate professor was that she was trying to produce the effect for the students that they were used to in their science classes, which is to say a profoundly disembodied effect. And that made sense for her in that situation. For me, what I'm trying to do in the classroom is to make students aware of my body and of myself and of my social position. Not because, well, both because I think, for two reasons. First, maybe because I think that's the ethical response to dominance. But secondly, because I am trying to teach them how to think differently. And I'm trying to use my embodiment in ways that make them make it easier for them to get where I'm trying to get them to go. Um, so I don't have any articles for you, BMAC 2012, but I, I mean, I, I, one of the things I really think is that, that creating situ, that in order to break through the kinds of resistance you're talking about, you have to create situations in which there are forms of embodied trust that allow people to make that conversation begin to happen. And that, you know, the way that I do that is different from how a white woman or a black man or a Muslim man, uh, 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 you know, an Arabic man might do it. Um, I have to do it from my body. And so those are my tricks. Um, and, and, you know, that's what I think I'm doing in that room. And part of the reason I teach that class is precisely to reach a bunch of kids who I think otherwise wouldn't be in the humanities and wouldn't take a humanist course. Uh, so I will invite audience members to type in uh, additional questions uh, if you wish. Um, there was an earlier comment about you touched upon relativism and constructivism, if you wish. Uh, oh yeah, there's another, Millward has a question here okay. that's in the Q&A section. I don't know if you can see there's a Q&A button. I see. Your uh, proposition of humanistic value, he writes, sounds very much like a proposition for the value of the hard sciences or scientific method. I can see richness, secondary, primary, and comparability, translation, playing, or translatability playing out in an imagined conversation where a scientific expert attempts to sell a student on the value of becoming a scientist. I think the same is true with your definition of the humanistic application definition of reason. Um, so I want to say that's absolutely right. I, I, I think that what I am 
what I'm trying to do in this book is to make a very, very strong epistemological case for the social and intellectual value of the humanities. And it is because it, because is it, because it is that, it is mirrored to some extent. I mean, part of the argument is in fact that we do it not worse than the natural sciences, we do it better than the natural sciences, and that we actually have a more sophisticated epistemological apparatus than they do because our objects are so much more complicated that it has forced us to develop a much richer and more complex series of methods and programs that of course make it harder for us to come to definitive conclusions. But so part of our environment is, is you know, at the most selfish level is we do it better, we do the very thing they claim they're doing better than they do. it. So that's my response to the first part of the question. The second part of the question, uh, Willard writes, I see the value of the proposition. So he's saying, you know, part of the first part of the question is to say, it seems like what you're describing is the way that a scientist might describe the value of the sciences. On the other hand, Millward says, I see the value of proposition of the humanities as standing apart from that of the hard sciences as being the only means with which we ask to a scientist perhaps working to unlock the secrets of human gene manipulation. Why do this? Should we do this? If so, how and what to what, to what degree? So the, the argument there is that the humanities offer a kind of ethical or political kind of knowledge that would come to adjust our, uh, the sciences and therefore are the place where conscience or thoughtfulness or consequentialism take place outside of a fully natural scientific uh, argument. I actually wanna say, Millward, I think this may surprise you, that I actually don't think that's the value of the humanities. I think that the value of the humanities as intellectual fields is primarily epistemological. I think the question is why should we do this? Should we do it if so and how to degree? Are actually scientific and are, are non, they're, they're not neither scientific questions nor humanistic questions. They're just questions that are political questions. And to me, the realm of politics, that is the realm of contestation about uh, social practices, is not a humanistic realm. There's, of course, the field of, human, uh, of, of the study of political science and of politics. But to me, that field is about how do politics work? What are the effective ways? What, you know, what were the causes of X, Y, Z? Which is to say the study epistemologically of how these things operate in the social and shape the social, they don't answer even a perfect understanding of how the parliamentary system functions as opposed to the, uh, you know, the, the, the presidential system in the United States, the UK versus US, doesn't actually answer any of the questions of why do this or should we do this? Should we do this and why do this are, and, and frankly, I don't actually also think that philosophy answers those questions. I think philosophy tells you how people have answered, that is historical research into philosophy or, or humanistic research in philosophy tells you how people have answered those questions and sometimes makes arguments about how those questions should be answered. But at the end of the day, all of us know you know, about utilitarianism and deontological ethics, even if we don't know exactly how they work, we all, you know, we all know roughly the basic problems, right? Which is, do you always obey the law? Or there's sometimes when some other law supersedes the law, these are basic questions. No one, like if philosophy could answer those questions, philosophy would, would have finished its job. And it's not finished, and it's precisely not finished because that's actually not the task, it seems to me, of a certain kind of research in philosophy. So, Part of what I would claim is that, you know, part of what I'm trying to do is actually say, look, the ethical questions, 
there, you know, there's some things that, that the humanities can do to help you answer those ethical questions, like give you some context and look at historical activity of when people have done things like this and how they turned out. And we can look at the various ways in which people have answered these questions and so on and so forth. But we can't answer the questions of whether it's better or not better to have a higher tax rate or a lower tax rate. We can answer the questions of what we think the effects will be, but we can't answer the question of whether it's more just or not. We can talk about, again, the arguments about why it might be more just or less just, but we can't, we can't provide those answers because those answers are fundamentally political. They're not, they're, they're, they're the subject of arguments among members of a community who are trying to orient themselves to values. And here I'm very, very much drawing on Weber and specifically on, on, on uh, one of his essays called On Science as a, as a Vocation. Uh, in which I, I really think there's a, a, a pretty, I, I know that one of the things that most humanists believe is that there are kind of fundamentally moral consequences to the work of the humanities. Part of my argument is that those moral consequences, as you understand them, are actually not, um, are not primary but secondary. Essentially consequences of thinking humanistically. That is having a rich understanding that different kinds of people might have different ideas that teach you something about something is not a moral position as far as I'm concerned. It's, it's a truth statement. And it's a truth statement on the basis of humanistic evidence. Right, so when I think like we should read books by you know, different kinds of people and not just all books by the same kind of person. Or if you're gonna write a theory, if you're gonna write a book called Theory of the Novel, you shouldn't just write about four novels from the same place, right? My argument is not that's morally bad. My argument is that's epistemologically foolish. The consequences of my claims epistemologically are often that it turns out you should look at evidence from other parts of the world. You should listen to other people. You know, the consequences of my theory of reason are that someone who is in dialogue with you in any way, ought, you ought to be allowed but again, on epistemological grounds, not on moral grounds, not because I'm, I, it's nice to listen to other people, but because I might be wrong, I should listen to other people, right? So, so it's, it's, it's an epistemological justification of many of the kinds of positions that we tend to argue about as moral positions. My argument is that those positions don't require a moral justification. They actually have embedded in them an epistemological justification that does the job. And what's more, that what that does is that it justifies then the fact that we have PhDs, that is it justifies our expertise. Because I have a PhD not in making the right moral decision, but I have a PhD in, in trying to talk about and understand how culture works. That's what I've spent my whole career doing. And, and so if someone says to me like, how should I vote? Well, you know, we can talk about that, but I'm not, that's not my PhD talking. But if someone says, how should I think about culture and should I listen to other voices or should I read things about other people or should I know other language? Like, yes, if you're asking me the question as a, as, as a person with a PhD, here's why I think that, here's why I have real expertise. I have expertise because I've studied a bunch of evidence and I've done a bunch of critical work both by myself and with others that has helped me understand how the evidence produces knowledge. So I realized that's kind of surprising, Millward, because I felt like we talked yesterday and I realized that it seems like I'm gonna agree with, you know, we're gonna agree with each other about everything. But I guess part of my point is that this is a way of having your moral cake and eating it too, by starting with epistemology rather than morality. 
and that what that does is, is, is it, and, and again, you know, maybe it's true that every book I've ever written is written uh, in the face of some wound or some injury that I believe I've suffered and exaggerated probably, <laughs> but it's, it's, it's a way of shutting Ron Rogowski up, uh, which, which seems pretty critical to me uh, insofar as the humanities kind of, again, can, can be aggressive rather than basing their claims on sort of asking people to be nicer, asking people to be smarter. Uh, so, um, that is all the questions that I see. Eric, you want to make final comments or, um, close in some way of your choosing? Yeah, I mean, look, I, you know, I mean, the book's the book and, um, I'm hoping that it, it is helpful to people. I mean, what I, you know, the thing that I'm really, that I really care about is, um, you know, COVID-19 aside, it's been a rough century to be a humanist. Um, it's, you know, and I, I see, um, I see so much of the both individual and interpersonal discourse that I have with my colleagues and my friends and also the written discourse about the humanities that's out there as coming from a kind of defensive uh, vulnerability, um, and this is already true in the 1880s when you know the people we're talking about being vulnerable are like you know the chair of philosophy at the University of Heidelberg, so not your you know you know not your usual uh, uh, vulnerable types. Um, you know that that's also not unserious. That is to say, that's a real question. If political science can explain to us why people vote the way they do, then what the hell are we doing? You know why read you know why read the Republic if you know, sociology tells us why people feel the way they feel, then why do we need, you know, why do we need novels at all? If history tells us why things happen, then why do we actually need to explain anything to each other? And these are real questions. And, and, and I think there's a kind of genuine um, epistemological modesty at the heart of the humanities that um, is really critical and that I don't want to lose. Um, but I, 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 do think that the combination of that modesty and of the institutional vulnerability to humanities has made people um, has has a, has caused humanists to develop an entire set of armor around themselves that has relied very heavily on the feeling that we all have often, which is that we're right and we're doing the right thing and we care about the right things and those other people just care about money or you know rewards or jobs and i think that that armor has done a good job of protecting us but i think it's also trapped us and what i imagine is that instead of building armor from our weakness that we take what is weak in the humanities, which is our, our genuine epistemological modesty. Are we right? Are we not right? We, it's very hard to prove things. Um, and we make it a source of strength and power, right? So it's not about erasing our weakness. It's about embracing our weakness and coming through our weakness to recognize that all of the, our achievements in the humanities, as, and think about all the things we know that we didn't know 100 years ago, and all of the work that that's done and all of the lives that that's changed, including the lives of obviously most of the people reading this lecture, but so many of our students has come from the power 
of our epistemological modesty and the ways in which it allows us to ask big questions and to be brave and to move forward. And then of course, you know, the ways that it, it allows us to question ourselves and to wonder whether what we're doing is worth it and so forth, right? So that, that vision of, of what it would feel like to be a humanist, which is to feel brave in our weakness and strong in our weakness, rather than defensive in our weakness, is what I would like to see um, and what I would like to make possible with this talk and, and with the book. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Dr. Eric Io, Penn State. Thank you for being with us. And uh, I really appreciate it. Try to be safe and healthy, everyone. And thank you for everyone for joining us. Um, have a great night. <laughs>